This is the official SASTA podcast brought to you by the godfather of SAS himself, Jason Lemkin, and I, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC. Now, today is a very, very special episode. Joining me in the hot seat, I'm delighted to welcome Mamoun Hamid. Mamoun is the co founder and partner at one of the world's best performing VC funds, Social Capital. Now, they aim to advance humanity by solving the world's hardest problems, and Mamoun invests across a variety of sectors and has served on the boards of some of the most disruptive software companies over the past decade, including Box, Yammer and Slack. And prior to starting Social, Mamoon was a partner at US Venture Partners. And also, if you're enjoying the show, then please do leave a review on iTunes. It would make a huge difference and we would be so grateful. And you can find the article for today's show on sasta.com. But enough from me. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome the main man, Mamoon Hamid, partner at Social Capital. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Well, Mamoun, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Harry. Now, I'd love to start off by hearing about you and how you made your way into the industry. I mean, you know, when we look at the portfolio companies, they're incredible. But what was the start for you? So I got my start in, in venture capital uh, roughly 11 years ago, uh, right after I'd come out of business school. And you may ask, you know, what is a kid out of business school doing in venture capital and helping entrepreneurs to think think through their business and helping them scale well. Really, I wasn't doing that when I got my start in venture capital. Maybe to help set the context, I'd worked in Silicon Valley for six years prior to going to business school. I was an engineer coming out of college, worked as an engineer for a number of years, and then moved into a product and a marketing role. So I had a good six years of helping a uh, high-growth company scale, but it was on the semiconductor side. This company made chips. And you may ask, like, okay, how do you make the transition from chips to SaaS? <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't a very obvious one other than in 2005 when I joined my old firm, U.S. Venture Partners, which was known mostly for making hardware and semiconductor investments. I was seeing a rapid shift away from making capital-intensive bets in companies that just didn't create a lot of value or were seeing this rapid move away, move to, to software and cloud-based companies. I saw sort of the writing on the wall and I started learning more about these types of companies and uh, eventually, actually, a couple years of learning uh, before I actually made my first investment in 2007, which is in, in Box. And so that was sort of the, my first foray into a SaaS company. And actually, Box at the time sold storage, you know, it's a more consumer service for you to have your audio, video, photos in the cloud rather than providing file storage for what, businesses. What to you at that early stage, you, as you said that you predicted the shift, what was so inherently attractive about the SaaS space to you then that made you believe in the real potential and the shift? Yeah, so it pertains to Box specifically. In, the, in 2007, if, if I looked at our internal use case of we still had file servers and they were sitting behind the firewall or in this in our uh, IT room. The notion of going to to the S drive, the share drive, in on a Windows PC to store my work files, my PowerPoints, my Excel files, and then having someone tell me like, "Hey, if you want to look at my files, go to that file server," and you know you'd have the VPN in, all kinds of stuff, uh, or FTP in, and it just seemed pretty gnarly for. 2007. Taking that to the cloud was such an obvious thing for uh, someone in the workplace. And the way I saw it at the time was likened it to something like Windows 95, Windows 3.1. And what is the one thing you did on the desktop? It was going to Explorer or your uh, file structure and find files. And it was one of the first 
kind of apps that you, you would go into or the most used, one of the most used apps on the Windows desktop. And I thought the same thing would happen inside the browser. The, one of the most used apps should be where going to the your files mm-hmm. inside of the, wherever they are. And it's it a turned, central hub, isn't it? It is. It's the central hub for your day-to-day workflow. That was the case when it was the the desktop-only world, and then it was still the case when it was the networked world, and you still access files through your desktop. But now that you had this browser, you would access your files through your browser, and that was this transition for specific, in this case, of Box. But that would also apply to a whole host of other software that was accessed you know, behind the firewall and that would all move to the cloud eventually, which, as you as you know, has happened now over the last, mm-hmm. you know, since then, which is like eight years later. And you mentioned the likes of Slack and Box there. So what's it been like helping these incredible startups scale into hyper growth mode and become the unicorns that they have become? What's that journey been like for you? Yeah. So, again, it turns out that when we invest, it's typically 10 people, not a lot of revenue, not obvious product market fit, but there's an early seed of something going on that's really special. And it's it, it's actually, you talk to a customer, they're like, yeah, I've been waiting for this. I never knew this existed, but they've just created a new use case for me that I can't live without. And it actually has insane product market fit with a small group of people. And uh, I would say that was the case when we made the investment in a Series A investment in Box, Slack, Intercom. There maybe dozens, if not hundreds of customers uh, and so from there to like hyperscale, it's amazing. It's insane uh, to see a company that you thought was just uh, could be something end up scaling so rapidly in, in just a couple of years. So there's a lot of company building along the way. You know, typically it's founders who are young and naive and that naivete actually helps them build products that end up succeeding just because they have, they don't have the past holding them down. You know, there's a lot of struggles that these companies go through. It's not all up and to the right. It's a lot of up and down, a lot of, it's a roller coaster ride. And, uh, but the, the, the net is that they're up and to the right. And you mentioned the struggles there. So what are the struggles that you most commonly encounter in these startups like Slack and Box when they're encountering this hyper growth mode? Yeah, I'd say the common one is that typically uh, sales is not the core DNA of the of the people, and so building an organization around sales and you know high velocity sales. Fundamentally, I think that a lot of these products are are built to be bought rather than built to be sold. So that is the natural inclina- inclination of the entrepreneurs is like to just keep building great product, and eventually um, people will buy them. Uh, but it turns out again, you know, in enterprise, you have to grease the skids a bit and actually sell. Uh, or even just help get the product adopted within an organization, and which means you have to sort of sell and be involved more so than just letting something get bottoms up adopted. And so in the, even in the case of Box early on, it was a lot of bottoms up adoption, but eventually we had to layer on uh, inside sales and then outside sales and lots of other things that support the sale of the product. And now that we sell into Fortune 500 companies, you know, we do a lot of you know seven figure deals at Box. You, you have to make sure your sales organization built out and. Uh, and the same applies to Intercom. I think we didn't have a salesperson at Intercom from the day we invested to maybe like 18 months later. And again, we let it sort of bottoms up, get adopted. And and then as we had to figure out the sales motions, uh, we've built that now to a team. I think that's 40 or 50 people. Uh, but that wasn't, in again, in the DNA of the company. And how do you make sure you keep the, the DNA of the company the, the way it is and also layer on the right type of sales organization? And I, we're actually going through the same sort of deal at Slack right now where we're building out a we, – we actually don't have anyone at the company that has a sales title 
it's all account managers because account managers, what they do is they actually take orders. They People raise their hand and say, hey, I would like to have Slack inside my company. I would de- like to deploy to a thousand people. Can you take my order? And so rather than, I would like to sell Slack to you today, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I think most great SaaS companies fall into that bucket. Yeah. Like they're order takers, but you have to become a good order taker. To do that, well, you have to have so-called sales. Mm-hmm. You know, we look for companies that provide a daily use case to their customers, products that are used on a daily basis. I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts then on what you think makes a product kind of have this stickiness and customer attention. The likes of Product Hunt have done it very well in terms of habit-forming activities. So what's your take on creating this stickiness? It, it's pretty straightforward. It's You've built a product that's actually useful. It actually solves a, a real need. At times, it would s- seem so obvious that Slack should have existed. But two years ago, when nobody was using it, and it didn't exist, uh, you were doing things in a hodgepodge of different ways. But now you ask, you know, a hundred people here, uh, could you live without Slack? And the answer would be absolutely not. That This is a company that created a need. So there, the need has to be there. And Slack may just be the very obvious one where two years ago it didn't exist and people were just fine or they were doing things. It's one of those ones where you can't actually imagine what life was like before it though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, right. And so uh, it goes back to your point. Like, yeah, we look for products that are used on a day-to-day basis inside of companies. And that's our sort of filter mm-hmm. on an, a, when we invest in a uh, SaaS company. There's not a lot of things that can be that. You know, uh, Yes, we've invested in Box, Yammer, Slack, Intercom. Uh, but there's others in other areas where we're invested, where we look for that day-to-day use case. Mm-hmm. And speaking of your involvement with the companies, what really is the unique value proposition of social capital? What's your sell to these companies? I know you're quite famed for segmenting the firm into different specialized divisions. Is that the sell? Am, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, so uh, social capital is, I, I guess, you know, uh, we're investment, investment, the investment team is one part of the organization. Mm-hmm. We also have a growth and a data science team. Uh, we have a uh, a team that looks at starting new things, uh, we call it the Discover team. Uh, we have our talent and part of the organization as well. So uh, we have a number of different teams, uh, investing being one of them. You know, I think one part that's unique is our growth and data science team, which brings a lot of the discipline that was established at Facebook and other great web scale companies and brings that to our portfolio uh, both pre and post investment, but specifically post investment when companies like a Slack or an Aircom are scaling and what are the, the best lessons that were learned at some of these web scale companies that can now be brought in from, from the composition of the team. So like what kind of people you should hire who can bring that discipline of growth, the type of product people you would want. So from a building out the org, recruiting, but also just initially uh, going in and being like the growth and data science team for those companies by being there one day a week, uh, by being in, inside the company, running the analytics, looking at the product flows, trying to f- find the golden paths, uh, trying to engineer growth, uh, doing all the things that a, a growth team would do inside of a company. Here, you just have the benefit of, of having world-class people who did it at you know, companies like Facebook, now being inside of your company at no cost. Mm-hmm. And how much of an involvement do these divisions have day on day? Yeah, so typically... Uh, our growth team spends a day to half a day a week at one of our companies, so they take on a limited set of projects. Uh, but once they're they're in, they're Which is pretty significant. They are dedicated. And there's uh, six people on that team, so uh, they spend a significant amount of time with that company. Mm-hmm. So it's not just like, hey, let me give you some advice. It's like they have all the credentials to all your analytics. They're actually running ad campaigns for you. They're doing all the 
CAC LTV. They're building out your data analytics infrastructure. I mean, their engineers pretty much act like an employee of that company. And we always get questions submitted by fans. And one I thought was particularly interesting and latching onto our conversation on Slack was what company do you think will be the first to make a million dollars on Slack? And what sort of Slack bot do you think will be the one that really makes the breakthrough? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And um, I don't know if I know the answer to this, uh, but what I'm seeing is basic bots that provide informational. So like you type in a string and it knows that it's a proper noun, it's a company name, let's say for us, and it's a company that's in Crunchbase or Mattermark, and it pulls up that information for us. So like, hey, Slack, the bot tells you, this company's raised this much money, it does this and that, this is the people on the team. Now look up the people on the team on LinkedIn and see what their backgrounds are. So uh, you can do a lot of this informational, like make my life easier type of stuff. Ultimately, the companies that will derive value or most value is they won't be just this intelligence layer. It'll be companies that have some sort of element of being tying back to a system of record. You know, I don't know if you know the framework of the system of record, system of engagement and system of intelligence and uh, the value mostly accrues to companies that are the system of engagement. So the, the, the challenge for bot companies will be is how much can they do that's ties to the system of record. You probably heard about the Slack fund. We are investing in a lot of these companies through the Slack, Slack fund. Mm-hmm. And right now, I think the use case is a lot just their convenience apps. They're making life easier via Slack just because it's become this hub for workflow for all all sorts of people now. And uh, so, so now that how can I do my expense report uh, inside of Slack just by typing in? Uh, it knows my calendar. It knows I went there. So here's a receipt. And I don't have to ever touch concur again. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we just hired someone. It comes from Greenhouse, uh, from the ATS. It's been logged that this person's now been hired. If it creates a workflow for through work workday where all the documents needed for this employee to actually get onboarded happens all through Slack. So it's creating somewhat of this uh, a workflow app and makes some somewhat actually uh, obviates the need to actually go into a lot of these enterprise applications mm-hmm. uh, and you can create a lot of the workflow and uh, through within, within yeah. Slack itself. And we're going to jump into a round now called the 60 second Sasta. So quick fire thoughts on, on a word or two. So your biggest challenge at social capital today. These days, I would say is it's very important for us to keep in mind our, who our constituents are, who our customers are. Our customers are the entrepreneur, the founder, and how do we make sure that everything that we do respects them. Uh, it makes making sure that, you know, we are timely with them. We provide candid, constructive, helpful feedback. And it's, it's making sure that, you know, we're providing goodwill back to the entrepreneurial community and doing that in a just very respectful way. And, and I would say it's not a challenge, but it's something that we think about a lot is, uh, how do we, uh, just have a really high bar on. And do you at social use the portfolio to demonstrate your brand? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our mission is to uh, advance society and humanity by investing in technology companies uh, that solve the world's greatest needs, you know, biggest problems. And I think if you look through the portfolio, whether it's enterprise or healthcare or education or financial services, you'll find that uh, every single one of the companies that's not enterprise probably has a very direct uh, path to advancing human progress. Mm-hmm. And even in the, the case of enterprise software companies that we invest in, it's uh, if you look at it, it goes back to we spend eight hours a day working. So how do we do that work more productively that provides us more gratification and happiness? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, life is at the end of the day about people feeling good about what they do. And if they can feel good about their work and the tools that they have to do their work, uh, then we're fulfilling our, our mission again. Mm-hmm. 
so we, I would say everything in social capital has to fit in this framework, advancing human progress. And then final 60 second question for you. What's been the pivotal moment in your career so far that's led to where you are today? That's a great question. And uh, I would say actually getting started with social capitals, you know, starting because if I look back of the my at the arc of my career, it was always about the love for technology and all the amazing, beautiful things that it's done for our lives. And now actually using the technology and capital and all the people, the great people we have at Social Capital to create this platform that now invests and starts companies that are solving really big issues and problems uh, across healthcare and education and financial services, areas that you know are really important to society. And so if I go back to four and a half, five years ago when you know this all started coming together, social capital started coming together, I'd say that'd be like, I didn't realize that that was all happening. But it's if I look fast forward now to fi- five years later, I look back at that as being a pretty critical point in my life. Mm-hmm. And then moving away from the 60-second SASTA and discussing social's role with SAS in general going forward, will we see a more heavy allocation towards the SAS space in the future? Will we see a pulling back, staying the same? And also, what SAS platforms are you really excited by? We will continue to make investments in enterprise and SaaS uh, because, again, it goes back to a fundamental belief that if work is a third of your day, how can software make that a third of your day more productive and more gratifying and provide you more happiness uh, and fulfillment with what you're doing to earn money for your family and loved ones. So we will continue to invest there. Mm-hmm. Areas you said that are hyped, underhyped, I think hyped areas or overinvested areas are areas like analytics and business intelligence and predictive shit, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, The integration of AI into SaaS, that sort of thing or not? Uh, just like I can tell you what the better the best leads are for you or okay, yeah, absolutely. there's a lot of AI machine learning bullshit yeah. that's out there. So underhyped, I think underhyped areas are non-US serving the non-US markets. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, vertical software is still fairly underhyped, mm-hmm. you know, like gnarly industries like shipping and oil and gas where uh, there's probably like tens of billions mm-hmm. of revenue to be had that hasn't been tapped yet. Hasn't been uh, touched. Yeah, it hasn't been touched at all. So, and I would say it has to do with, you know, those people don't understand those markets as well. Mm-hmm. They're harder to build software for probably and harder to sell to, which means all it takes more capital. And so you just can't go to Saster and, you know, raise <laughs> half a million dollars yeah. and then, yeah, exactly, raise a half a million, two million dollar seed and get going. So you need probably a lot more capital mm-hmm. and probably some domain expertise to do those. Well, Mamoon, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and we can't wait to see the growth of social in the future. Thanks for having me, Harry. Please hang up and try again. Again, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Moon for taking the time out today to join us at the SASTA conference and absolutely amazing to hear the exciting involvements at Social Capital. And if you're enjoying the show, then do not forget to leave a review on iTunes. Jason and I would be so grateful and it really does make a huge difference. And if you'd like to read more, you can find the post for the show today on SASTA.com. Thanks so much, as always, for tuning in and we look so forward to bringing you next week's episode with Russ Fujioka at Zero.